you know, my my dog gets so excited sometimes and he just can't let go of things. Can't get him to calm down. When I uh, when I was a young kid, our neighbors had a dog who who was just kind of an ugly little bulldog. He had more teeth than anything. And, and uh, when he got it in his head to do something, you were have a hard time stopping him. One time he got a hold of the back of my arm with that with all those teeth, and I had to shake for all I was worth to get him to let go. And I ran. If you ever want to see me run fast, that was the one time in my life. Bulldog, get a hold of something, Arr, and they won't let go. These people in the day of Malachi would not let go of God. They were criticizing Him, and they were just, ah, they, they just don't wise up. They didn't let go. And as we come to Malachi chapter 3, we, we see the, the final interchange between them and God. Starting in verse 13, and God is talking. He says, your words have been harsh against me. I don't know if you have a mental picture of God as being able to have his feelings hurt. But that should be in your mental picture of God. Um, In the book of Ephesians, it talks about not, or or excuse me, 1 Thessalonians, not... uh, my mind's gone now. Ephesians t- not grieving the Holy Spirit. He says, your words have been harsh against me. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? You have said, it is useless to serve God. What profit is it that we have kept his ordinance and that we have walked as mourners before the Lord of hosts? So now we call the proud blessed. For those who do wickedness are raised up. They even tempt God and go free. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before Him for those who fear the Lord and those who meditate on His name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on that day that I make them my jewels. And I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. Then you shall again discern between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. This is the final complaint of these sinners. And there is a disagreement over the criticism. God comes to them and says, You have been harsh with me. When I listen to this interchange, and God says, You've been harsh with me, they say, How have we been harsh? And then He lays it all out. I have two reactions. One is, as I look at these people, I say, Are you kidding me? Are you really talking to God and saying, God, what's the problem? They were, look at the things that they said about God. It's useless to serve God. What profit is it that we have kept his ordinance or his law um, and that we have walked as mourners? We call the proud blessed. All these things they said um, were so sinful and so worldly, and yet they said, what are you talking about? Reminds me of 1 Timothy chapter 4. Whoops. 1 Timothy chapter 4. 
that says this, Now the Spirit expressly says in the latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. Do you know it's possible for you to sin so much that you become desensitized to God? And people will come and say, look at this in your life, and you'll go, what are you talking about? These people were clearly living way away from God, and yet when God confronts them, they go, what? Their hearts were hardened. They were calloused. Their conscience was seared. I would encourage you along this line that the next time you're thinking about criticizing God, you might just stop and think, now wait a minute, I wonder if my criticism is right. Because <laughs> usually it's not. The other interesting possibility that I see here in these people is, is this. They didn't understand that God was always listening. It's like God is standing there saying, uh, hello, I'm standing right here. See that on TV shows, that's kind of a little comedy thing they like to use once in a while. Two people are talking and the other person is standing over here going, I can hear you. Do you suppose that they thought God didn't hear what was going on between them? Is it possible that they said all these harsh things and then when God comes along and says, you've been talking bad about me, they're going, uh, what do you mean? I think it's possible because I think a lot of us forget that God is always listening. He says, your words have been harsh against me. God heard the words. God hears our words. We say and forget things, and then when people come to criticize, we say, no, 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 I didn't say that. Does God ever remember your words wrongly? Or is his memory perfect? So he comes to them, and there is this dispute about the criticism. And then as he gets into the criticism, we find out what happens to people who live in sin. The first thing is what I have called the disappointment of religion. Look at verse 14. God says, here are the things that you have said against me. You have said it's useless to serve God. What profit is there that we have kept his ordinance and that we have walked as mourners before the Lord of hosts? The word mourners here is a key word. Uh, to, to mourn obviously means to grieve. And in that day, there were two or three times when they would wear a certain kind of clothing and act in a certain way. Um, when they lost a loved one and they were grieving, certainly they're in mourning, they would, they would do it. Also when they were showing repentance from sin and also when they were fasting. What did they do? The, you remember the phrase from the Old Testament, sackcloth and ashes? They would wear very rough clothing and put ashes on their head to show how humble and and, uh, and low they are trying to make themselves, or to show how low they have been brought by circumstances, they, they went about in sackcloth and ashes. And it was the way to grieve. It was the way to show repentance over sin. Do you remember when, when Jonah confronted Nineveh and he says, God's going to destroy this place. They all repented and wore sackcloth and ashes. 
And so what he's what these people are saying is, we have done the act of repentance by wearing the sackcloth and ashes. We have kept the ordinance or the the ordinance is another word for law or rule. They have kept the Old Testament law. But they say it's useless to serve God. There is no profit. Here's why I've called this the disappointment of religion. Religion is man's attempt to earn God's favor by ritual activities. These Jewish folk who were God's chosen people had become so sinful that they thought of God's law and the worship of God as a means to earn His favor and gain health and wealth. It's like they turned on the TV, saw the promotion for the success CDs, bought the whole set, tried them out, and they didn't work, so they wanted their money back. They were trying on religion as a as a tool, as a technique to get something from God. They, you know, to put it in contemporary terms, like some other churches would teach you, they thought if they come and do this ritual, they will gain salvation. I'll do something for you, God. You do something for me. And God says, that's not what it's about. The phrase here, where is the prophet? If you remember the movie phrase from a few years ago, show me the money. That's what they're saying. Where's the prophet? I'm not getting any better off in my life, but I'm going through all these religious rituals. These folks were trying to follow God's ritual worship law as a mechanism to get blessing from Him without a real heart for Him. Now, how do I know that? Because they were living in sin at the same time. The real definition of a legalist is a person who's going to live in sin and come over here and do some religious things and think they're going to earn God's favor. God says, if you're really living for me, these sins will go away. Your heart will be with me. And out of that heart of love and faith, you will do these things. They were living in sin. Do you remember the sins that God has mentioned in this book? Their sacrifices were deficient. They were impatient toward God's worship. There were impure priests. There was unequal marriage, as in marrying unbelievers. And there was ungodly divorce. All of those things are going on, and yet they come to God and say, God, we're going to church every week. How come you're not blessing us? One of the times where I most clearly encounter this is when people want to get married. And when unbelievers look through the phone book and think, well, my grandmother was a Baptist. How about that guy? And they come in, and they want to be married by a preacher, and some of them want to be married in a church. And one of the questions I love to ask is, why do you want to be married by a preacher in a church when you have no church affiliation? You, you really don't really declare yourselves to be believers in God. And I think what's really going on in their mind is, how ignorant can you be? Well, of course we want to get married by a preacher. And so I will read between the lines and say to them, you know, you probably don't think this way, but a lot of people think if they get married by a preacher, they're going to get God's blessing on their marriage. 
And they don't sit there and go, oh, no, we don't think that. They just kind of sit there stone-faced. And I say, the real way you get God's blessing on your marriage is, and then we go on to talk about relationship with God and so on and so forth. You wouldn't be one of those people who thinks you're going to come to church and then go out and live like the devil, but God's going to bless you because you came to church. You wouldn't be that way, would you? That's how these people were. And then they had the audacity to criticize God. They're going, hey, come on, God, we were in church on Sunday. Where is the fat wallet you promised me? But at the same time, they're living in sin. And God says that's not going to work. And they discovered that won't work. Look at this. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Coming to church is a good thing. I don't want to discourage anybody from coming to church. But the question you need to ask, if you want God's reward in your life, and that's not just money, that's a whole life kind of blessing, are you diligently seeking God? Or are you a dabbler? Are you a toe-tipper? Ooh, the water, ooh, ooh it's kind of cold. Ooh, ooh. I'm getting up to my ankles. I can stand that much. God says, look, dive in. Or get out the pool. That's what he says in the book of Revelation. I wish that you were hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. Dabblers disgust God. Oh, that's harsh. I, I hate to say that. But the great truth here is, those who dive in always find blessing. What was the result of their half-hearted worship? The result was the disillusionment of sin. Look at verse 15. These, they, were, they were saying these things, what profit is it? They're, they're being religious but not following God. Look at verse 15. So now we call the proud blessed. In other words, here, here they are. They're looking around and they're going, well, I guess it's the proud that God blesses, not the humble. And those who do wickedness, they get raised up. And, and even those who tempt God, they go free. God doesn't judge them. I've called this the disillusionment of sin. If you live in sin, you will start to think this way. But it's not right. It's, it's, it's not accurate. Let me give you some examples. Do the wicked go free? Are they raised up? What about Ted Bundy? Did he go free? The Green River serial killer. Went free for a long time, but not anymore. Richard Nixon. Bill Clinton. The mayor of Spokane. The CEO of Enron. The huge and growing population of our local and state prisons. Do the wicked go free? Well, some people say, well, yeah, those are criminals. Now, we're not talking about criminals here. We're talking about spiritually wicked people. Do the wicked really have a better life than the godly? If you think that, I'll tell you why. It's because you don't know the wicked very well. In my dealings with the population of Tukwila, as a chaplain for the fire department, the police department, and other organizations I was part of, I'm here to tell you, I don't think the wicked live any better than the righteous. In fact, I think they live worse. Now, I will give you this. They have more money a lot of times. 
but I don't think their lives are better. Not from what I've seen. Do they die at peace? Not from what I've seen. Do they enjoy their marriage as much as the godly people do? Not from what I've seen. But you know what? what's the problem here with these people? They are so calloused with sin, they aren't seeing things accurately. You see, these people were either unbelievers or unspiritual believers. When you live in sin as a Christian, you are an unspiritual believer. Until you come to faith in Christ, you are an unbeliever. And both unbelievers and unspiritual believers see the world from a human point of view. All they ask is, what's in this for me? And they don't want to let go of their sin in order to fully embrace the God life. And so while they're living in sin, they say, how come God hasn't made my life better? And sitting here right now, you're all going, yeah, that doesn't make any sense at all. And yet when we get in the situation, sometimes sin deludes us so much that we can't see how stupid what we're saying is. So what is God's final answer to this criticism? This unjust criticism. Here's the summary of it. We're going to answer it both this week and next week. And the summary is this. You're wrong. God says to these people, you're wrong. I do know who the godly people are and I will reward them and I will punish the ungodly. First of all, we see a description of the godly. They feared the Lord and not the ungodly religious society. Look at verse 16 again. As God turns his attention to the godly, he says, Those who feared the Lord spoke to one another and the Lord listened to them. And at the end of that verse, For those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name, they shall be mine, God says. The description of the godly starts with this. They feared the Lord and not the ungodly society. Friends, there is no person, organization, or government that can keep you from living for the Lord. David. David did not stand up to Goliath first. Who did he stand up to first? His brothers who were jealous of him and who thought he was just some little brat coming out to the battle. He stood up to them and said, Is there not a cause here? There is something for God to be done. He had to stand up to them first before he got a chance to stand up to Goliath. Your brothers, your sisters, your father, your mother may be trying to keep you from living for the Lord. Certainly this society in the day of Malachi was not encouraging godliness. And yet there were people who feared the Lord. David stood up to the mean brothers. Daniel stood up to a king. Peter stood up to the religious rulers of Israel. They arrested him for preaching. And he said, look, guys, whether I can obey God or you, whether I should obey God or you, you, you figure it out here. He stood up to him. They beat him and sent him back. And what does he do? He goes right back out and starts preaching again. Nobody can keep you from living for the Lord. It cannot happen. The decision you have to make is... Whom shall I fear? 
Are you going to fear the people around you, the family around you, the organization around you, the job around you? Or are you going to fear God? Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear those who only kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin, and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. When those, when those, uh, when Daniel's friends went into that, went into that fiery furnace, they said, King, we are not bound down to you. God might deliver us. God might not deliver us. But either way, we're, you know, they knew God was going to take care of them somehow. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him will I also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him will I also deny before my Father who is in heaven. These folks here had to step up in the face of an ungodly society. But they did it. They feared the Lord and not the ungodly religious society. Secondly, they meditated on God's name, not their circumstances. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord listened to them. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. I guarantee you, folks, if you meditate on your circumstances, you can get a real good blue funk going. This last week, my breakfast was interrupted. My, my, I, I have a gourmet breakfast every morning at Shea McDonald. And I read the newspaper and learn all kinds of smart things. I get the manager of McDonald's comes in. He says, "You have a phone call." I say, "Yeah." <laughs> yeah, yeah, dear, uh, dear. The cars broke down. The engine light went flash, 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 flash. Die. Yes, yeah, nothing. Twelve hundred bucks won't take care of. If I just sit around and think about that, I, I can get to thinking poor. Oh, I don't have enough money. Oh, that church doesn't pay me enough. Oh, those people don't love me. Blah, 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 blah. You know what? And none of it's true. I meditated on the good things, which was, thank you, God, that this happened now, not in July, when we anticipate driving that car to California. Yeah, I think the Lord was gracious. I don't think he was harsh. And I have a friend who owns a towing business, and I have another friend who has a, who is a professional mechanic, and I know I can trust them. I just said, God, how great is that to have godly friends who I know will speak the truth to me? What are you meditating on? Friends, I got news for you if you didn't know it. Your thought life will determine your worldview. Your thought life will determine your worldview. What you meditate on is going to determine whether you are happy or sad, uh, optimistic or pessimistic, joyful or angry, whatever. It's going to come from what you think about. These people thought about God and His name. Listen to Hebrews 5. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you've come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he's a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, who by reason of use have their senses 
exercise. That's the word gymnazo. We get our word gymnasium from it, which means trained, physically trained. They have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. I got another piece of news for you. Your mind will not think right without training. Now, y'all, all of you that have raised little kids know what I'm talking about. Because little kids come up with these certain trains of thought, these certain logics, and you go, man, you, you are way out of there. You know, let, me, let me straighten you out. I got news for you. You're all children before God, including this one. I am a child before God, too. Your senses need to be trained. I can remember when I was a, a little kid, there was this teenager in our church, and one time I saw him wearing a hairnet. And I thought, what in the world? And uh, his dad was a barber. And uh, I, I think I heard this from his mom or maybe from him. He was training his hair. You, you comb it just the right way and you put a hairnet on and I guess it gets your hair to grow that way. I'm trying to train my hair just to grow back. I get up every morning and do some hair calisthenics. <laughs> oh, folks, your mind needs to be trained by God's Word. The word training here clearly infers effort. God wouldn't have used the word. You, you could translate that word exercise and mean it to talk about physical exercise. Or you could translate it to mean the place of physical exercise. God wouldn't use that word if he didn't want to intend effort that needs to go into the training of our mind. Your mind needs to become trained so that when that bad thing happens tomorrow, whether it's the red light or something worse, that you immediately think a good thought. You say, is that possible? Yes, it is. If you will meditate on God's name on the sermon notes every week there's a verse there at the end of the sermon notes and it says meditate on this verse why do i put that there i could put memorize but memorizing is not the point the point is to repeat a truth and to think about it over and over so that it permeates your mind and trains you to think a certain way they meditated on god's name not their circumstances i would ask you are you meditating on god or the world if you look long enough I, i'll tell you the guy that disgusts me more than anybody else bill gates same age as me college dropout and a billionaire and here i am serving the lord and not a billionaire if i think about that long enough I, i'm going to get some evil thoughts going but i choose not to they meditated on the Lord. Look at the third characteristic of the godly. They encouraged each other. Look what it says. Those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. They, To put it in modern terms, they hung out together. One of the reasons you need to come to church is to be encouraged by other believers to keep on fearing God and not man. You need to have your senses trained, your mind trained by talking to other people. You need to find other people who are trying to do the right things and listen to them and follow their example and just be encouraged by the fact that they're trying to do the right thing. In your little pocket of the world, you might be the only person who's not trying to sin. You might be the only person trying to live in righteousness. That might be possible. And that's why it's so important to come to church.
To, to come to the ladies' Bible study, if, if, if you're in an ungodly home and you're a woman, you ought to come to that ladies' Bible study to, learn, to get your senses trained to think godly in that ungodly environment. To come to the men's monthly pizza and fellowship night and to say, hey, there are some men who are living for the Lord. Come to that Wednesday worship. Get, come in the midweek. I was talking with some people about our Wednesday night plan before we adopted, and I was just kind of gathering some data. And, and somebody here said to me, it's so great just to come and be with Christian people in the middle of the week. And I thought, okay, that helps me. See, because I, where I work, it's all Christians, except for some people who come into the office once in a while. And I don't, I don't know that pressure like you do. But you need to be here. You need to be here if you're a kid in the Iwana Club or in the youth group. Who are you hanging out with? 1 Corinthians 53, 15, 15, Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Why is it that the evil company always drags down the godly? Why is that? Why aren't we dragging them up? God says, get together in the church and encourage one another. Peer pressure is real, and it's not just a teenage problem. Well, what does God say about these godly people? Look at His delight. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before Him, before the Lord. Forgetfulness, says one author, forgetfulness has no place with God because he forgets not. Both expressions are used only to picture vividly to our mind that our deeds are present with God. God doesn't need a book for him to remember who you are. But he writes it to tell us, look, I know about your good deeds. I'm keeping track of your good deeds. What a tremendous thing. God remembers the deeds of the righteous people. 1 Corinthians 4, 5, Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring the light of, to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the heart. Then each one's praise will come from God. Great day is coming when God is going to praise us. God remembers the deeds of the righteous people. God treasures the righteous people. Look here, I, I have the New King James translation, and I believe the King James does this also. I don't know about the others. Um, verse 17, They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on that day that I make them my jewels. Now, the, this word is never translated jewel as in a ring with a stone or, or necklace. It, but what it literally means is a special treasure. Translators use the word jewel because historically to most people, the most precious thing they would own would be a jewel. If, you know, going back, way back, if they even owned one. God says, these are going to be my special treasure. Matthew Henry said this. I thought it just made this so picturesque. The rest of the world is but lumber in comparison with them. God looks down at the world and He says, look at those godly people. I love those godly people. Those are my special possessions. Uh, we all have special possessions. 
whether it's grandma's china or, or silver that's been handed down or a new air hose in the garage that you can pump your own air. <laughs> we all have some special possession. You are God's special possession. Not the world, not, not the terra firma, not the dirt, not the beautiful mountains. You. You are His special treasure. 1 Peter 2.9 in the New Testament talks about us being God's own special people. We are His special treasure. What else does God say about the righteous people? It says God will not punish the righteous people. I, I, I know we take that for granted, but we need to rejoice in that. He says, I will spare them in that day. I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. All of you that have children know what it means to love your child, and especially a son that serves him. In other words, it's not a rebellious son. It's a son who, who honors you and works with you. And you think, how would you treat that son in a special day? Boy, you'd really work hard to make it special. And if it was a day of, of trial, you'd protect him. God says, when that day comes... He will, I will spare them. Next week, as we get into chapter four, we're going to talk about that day. And we're going to look more particularly because I realize there is a, there is a significance to the people of God, the, the Jewish people, as we look forward, um, a particular application of this passage as well as the broader truth to us, which is that God knows us and God is going to spare us. But he ends this passage, verse 18, talking about the discernment of righteousness. And this is the answer to their broad accusation. In verses 13 through 15, he says to them, You have accused me of lifting up the wicked and not lifting up the righteous. Look what he says in verse 18. In, or verse 17 says, In that day I will spare the righteous. Then you will again discern between the righteous and the wicked between one who serves God and one who does not serve God. And what we're going to learn next week as we go into it is there's a day coming when God is going to separate the righteous from the wicked. And in particular, a special day for Israel as well as for all the rest of mankind. J. Vernon McGee, I think, captures this very well when he says, in the day which God has appointed, the day of his judgment, when he comes again, it will be evident who are the true believers and who are the make-believers. And that's the people that God is addressing here. I, I think it's fair to say that these, the majority of folks in Israel were make-believers, not true believers. And God says, you want to know whether I can tell the righteous and the wicked? He said, there's a day coming when I am going to divide the righteous and the wicked. And then you will know too. Now, the bad news is, folks, if you wait till then to learn that truth, you're going to be like Judas when did Judas learn what was right and wrong? After he betrayed Jesus, after he was overridden with guilt, tried to give the money back to undo his terrible deed, and he couldn't, so he went out and hanged himself. And the scripture calls him the son of perdition or judgment or punishment in hell. Did Judas learn finally what was right and wrong? Oh, yeah. You want to wait that long? Did Eve learn the knowledge of good and evil? 
Yes, she did. Do we wish she had not? Yes, we do. One commentator said this, In the great day of the Lord, at least, at least, if not long before, it will be fully disclosed who have been the truly wise people, those who took up their cross and followed Christ, or those who satisfied the flesh with its affections and desires, following the multitude to do evil. God said, you're going to have an opportunity someday to learn. What he wanted them to do was learn now and to follow him now. I'm just about finished with my latest home improvement project, the shed. I'm using it. It's great. Got my garage cleaned out. You know how you clean the garage? You put everything in the shed. I learned that from my chairman of the deacons in Tukwila. Yeah. Move it all out. It's all clean now. I'm real happy with most of how it has turned out, but there's one thing I wish was better. It's not square and plumb. <laughs> Everybody who knows the building trades understands what I just said. Now, it's close. It's close to being square and plumb. And because it's a shed, it really doesn't matter. Now, square is when you get the floor exactly right and the rest of the building. The floor is actually square, but the rest of it didn't quite, didn't quite come in there. And then plumb is when the walls are, are straight, not like this, you know. I'm only off a half an inch on one wall at one side. Now, on a 10-foot wall, that's not a big deal. If you were building a house and the wall was 80 foot long, it would be a big deal. Because by the time you got down, it would be way messed up. My shed is pretty close. Good enough for a shed. If you come and look at it, the parts you see, you probably won't be able to tell. But if you, since I just told you, some of you men will walk around and go, oh, yeah, look at that right there. <laughs> but I won't care because it's just a shed. But I wonder if we're not living our lives that way sometimes. Hey, it's, it's pretty close. These people thought their lives were pretty close to God's mark. Hey, look, I'm doing all this religious stuff. God said, you are way, way off the mark. The mark is 1 Peter 1.16. Be holy, for I am holy. That's the mark. And if you're not on that mark, you're missing it, and you're not going to have God's blessing. I want to challenge you today to take a real good look and make sure that you are one of those godly people, one of those godly people who is meditating on God's name, who is fearing God and not their society. Heavenly Father, Thank you for your truth. This is a harsh book, Father. It's a harsh book because it's written to some people that are really living ungodly and yet calling themselves your children. Father, may that not be true of us. May we not somehow want to walk on both sides of, uh, of the line of righteousness. May we be, plant our feet firmly on the side with you no matter what goes on around us. Give us that strength. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.